Father, thank you so much for this amazing book that you have given to us in your word. Uh, Father, we pray that as we dive into, again, such weighty matters this morning, uh, one, we are grateful that you've given us the word and that as a church, we, um, we submit ourselves to it uh, and all that it teaches. And we pray as we, um, as we consider um, your sovereignty, your bigness, your majesty, and even your judgment this morning. May it point us to the cross of Christ, and may we leave this place um, in humility and gratitude. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, go ahead and get out a couple things. Get out your sheet. But also, you need to get out a Bible if you've brought one. Uh, get it out of a phone. We are going to be covering a lot of ground this morning. And if you noticed, uh, we are skipping ahead a little bit in our study, and this is, there's a lot of reasons for this. One, we're trying to get done uh, by December. I think we go through maybe the second week of December for this study, and uh, there's just so much to cover. The, the other is this, that really we, we are, last week Chad talked about the beasts, and, and this week we're talking about the judgment of God. And what we're going to look at this morning is really two chapters out of Revelation that serve as a kind of summary um, an in-depth look of what this judgment really looks like, the final judgment. And, and if we went just verse by verse through all of these chapters, uh, we'd be talking about God's wrath for probably the next five months, uh, which would be um, a hard study to sit through. And so I say this, study it, you need to. And we're going to be hitting a lot of the high points this morning, but it's important that you understand what we're looking at and the context in which we're looking at. Don't just ever, ever come to a Bible study and let some guy tell you what to think about the Word of God. Um, the Holy Spirit is in you. Uh, you can study it on your own. John even tells us in this book that there is blessing that comes from reading it. And so don't let the fact that we are skipping a little bit ahead uh, make it off the hook for you to read the context from which we are going to be reading this morning. Uh, I want to begin this way. I want to begin this way. Um, I used to meet with a man, we're going to call him Stephen, that wasn't his real name. Uh, he has since passed away. Uh, I met with him usually about twice a month, and he had become a Christian a few years before I had met him in a very dramatic way. Um, he had spent a life of complete godlessness, um, not only um, kind of just pursuing his sin and his sins, but also uh, just railing against the church, railing against Christ, uh, even uh, picketing the church. Uh, he hated Christians. And God just came in a, in a moment, really almost like a vision for him, where he realized, he told me, I mean, tears in his eyes, that he knew that Christ had died for him. Uh, it was a powerful conversion. But what happened after that was profound because he had a lifetime of just sin and brokenness and shame and guilt and anger to deal with. That anger just didn't go away overnight. The anger that he had for Christians, the anger that he had for the church, the anger that he even had for God. And so in that brokenness, as we would meet, we would talk all about who God is and what he has done. We'd talk about the gospel. We'd talk about his um, his past, but there was one topic that he really had a hard time with. One topic that I knew that if we talked about it, it would end um, 
not necessarily in shouting, but he'd be pretty angry. And that was the judgment of God. He had a hard time comprehending a God who would eventually pour out his wrath and punishment for sin. He did not like the concept. The idea that God would punish sinners was incomprehensible to him. God's wrath. One of the questions I have for you this morning is, what do you do with that? What do you do with a doctrine like the judgment of God, the wrath of God, that God has a righteous and holy anger for sin? And what I mean by that is that his anger towards our sin is not wrong. It is actually just and good. And that he would punish sin and punish sinners for their sin does not make him wrong, but actually makes him just and good. That's the doctrine that my friend Stephen had such a hard time with. And Stephen is not alone. He wasn't then, and he, he hasn't been really over the centuries. Uh, perhaps you have a hard time with the judgment of God this morning, the wrath of God. That might describe some of you in this room. Um, you would not be alone either. I mean, this has been a common issue for God's people to the point where it even has developed itself even into uh, false theologies. And we'll talk about some of those more in depth um, later. But we have to understand something <laughs> about the wrath of God because Stephen also had another problem I, I eventually discovered. He didn't just have a problem with God's judgment, God's wrath, but he actually also had a problem with God's grace. And as we begin to talk even more, as we got to know each other, as he was recounting once again that story of conversion, and when he realized that Christ died for him, he looked at me and he said, why did Jesus have to die? I, don't, I didn't want him to die for me. Why did he have to do that? I was just fine if he could just forgive me. If he could just say, I accept you. Why would somebody, an innocent person, have to die for me? You see, I think Stephen's two problems are connected. Where we have a very low view of the judgment of God, we also have a very low view of justification. When we do not understand God's wrath and punishment for sin, really, there is no point to the cross. And so, my hope this morning, as we look at this very weighty topic that not only will we be filled with a holy fear of who God is and what our sin is, what it means, and what it means that God, one day, there will be a final judgment, but my hope and prayer is that as we end, this will point all of us to the cross. And we will see just how great and glorious the cross really is and what Christ has done for us. All right, so there's three things, and this is how we're going to do this. Um, I, I mentioned before so the judgment of God, God's wrath, really begins in the book of Revelation in chapter 15. In chapter 15 and 16, uh, John has a vision, a vision of seven bowls, uh, each uh, an angel is carrying this bowl, and those bowls of wrath are being poured out upon all humanity. And you remember, as we've been through this study, we've talked about the number seven being an important one. It's the number of completion, the number of totality. So seven is important. Seven bowls of wrath means God's wrath is going to be total. 
it is going to be complete over all of humanity, over all sin. It's going to be a complete punishment. We pick up our story really in chapter 17. Chapter 17 and 18 is where we're going to focus this morning, and it really is a continuation or a more in-depth look at the seventh bowl. That's going to be my view. There's different ways to interpret that. So uh, like much of this in Revelation, there's different ways to interpret how you would take this. My view is that chapters uh, 17 and 18, what we're going to look at this morning, is really a continuation, a more in-depth view of of the sixth and, and really the seventh bowl. And it's the judgment of Babylon. The judgment of Babylon. And in the judgment of Babylon, this final judgment, the seventh bowl, we're going to see three things that I want us to draw from this morning uh, that then you can discuss at your tables. And those three things are actually on your sheet. And I've just selected some key passages from Revelation 17 and 18 that would go along with those three things. So you can kind of follow along there or you can read in your Bible. We're going to be all over, though, these two chapters and some of 16 as well. So the first thing we're going to look at is the seductive evil of idolatry. One of the great themes of the book of Revelation and certainly a theme here, uh, not only in chapters 17 and 18, but in Honestly, chapters 14, 15, 16. The seductive evil of idolatry. The second thing we're going to look at is the horror of God's judgment. That it, it is awful. And, and there is parts of it that is incomprehensible and should be to us. But the last thing and, and where we're going to end is the glory of God's justice. That all of this should fill us with a much bigger picture of the glory of God. And that really has been much of the theme of the book of Revelation, hasn't it? That we leave each Tuesday with a much grander, much bigger vision of who God is. And as I said this morning, I I want that to then point us to the cross of Christ. Okay, so that's the ground we're going to cover. Hopefully we're going to do that in the next 20 minutes or so. And then you'll be able to talk together at your tables. So the first thing I want to look at is, is the seductive evil of idolatry. The seductive evil of idolatry. And we're, we're going to see this. Uh, we're just going to look at Revelation 17. We'll, we'll look at just a few verses together. And, and really, as I said, though, this is a much larger theme. That God's judgment ultimately is coming, yes, for sin. But that sin is, is categorized, really all lumped together as really one thing. And it is this evil that is idolatry. And we see this in Revelation 17, verse 1. There's three visions, three images in John's vision that we're going to look at in this, in this chapter. It's uh, th- this vision of a prostitute, a vision of a beast, and a vision of a great city. And the first is this image of a prostitute. In verse 1, Uh, John says that one of the seven angels, so he had seven angels with seven bowls of wrath being poured out over the earth. So one of these angels comes to him and says, come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters. And one of the reasons why I think this is just a continuation specifically of the seventh bowl is because there's no break here. Uh, All of this vision is just continuing. And now uh, this angel has come alongside John and says, let me show you with even more detail what is going to happen. Okay, 
So this vision, he sees this prostitute, a great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. Okay, so what do we do with that? Uh, The prostitute. The prostitute is an important figure, an important image for a lot of reasons. And the first is this. It's contrasting against really a a figure that we've already talked about. And that is the woman of Revelation 12. If you were with us a few weeks ago, we talked about this woman. A vision of a woman who would give birth to a child. We said that that woman was not necessarily Mary, but it is the church, uh, the people of God. This woman is later described in Revelation 21 as, what do you, what do you, have you read it before? As a bride, the bride of Christ. So there is a contrast here that we are looking at this prostitute, an adulterous, promiscuous woman contrasted against the bride of Christ, the people of God, the woman of virtue prostitute, bride of Christ. So what what could that mean? Well, if we know that uh, the woman is the bride of Christ, is the people of God, then the prostitute represents uh, organized godlessness. Organized godlessness when people, humankind, develops civilization and societies completely apart from God's rule and law. It is when humans get organized and begin to develop and build themselves, kings and kingdoms, societies, civilizations that are completely godless. That is the prostitute. And we see this as John sees this vision that kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality with her. Right? In other words, that it's not just talking about just one civilization, but over our history as people, there have been many civilizations that have given way to even other civilizations that have been completely godless, have cut God out of their makeup, out of their culture, that are built upon building a name for themselves. And ultimately, John's vision shows us that it's, it's idolatry. And we see that that's the second part of why the the image of a prostitute in particular is important. Notice these kings have committed, John says, sexual immorality with this prostitute. Even uh, there's wine whose sexual immorality, uh, wine of whose sexual morality the dwellers on the earth have become drunk. Okay, why why prostitute, why this image of of a promiscuous, adulterous woman, why sexual immorality in particular? Um... Perhaps there was literal sexual immorality going on, but that's not what he's talking about. You see, throughout the Bible, our sin of idolatry has been equated with adultery. And and that is uh, nothing new to the book of Revelation. As we've said time and time again, John's vision uh, is, is drawing off of biblical imagery. So in the Old Testament, when prophets would come against the people of Israel and call out their sin of idolatry, it would categorize it as adultery. Why? Well, in essence, what idolatry is, is when you are worshiping a false god other than the god of uh, Jacob, the god of Isaac. That's what the uh, prophets would say. 
So other than the one true God that you have been betrothed to, remember, if you are the bride of Christ, when you commit idolatry, you are in essence, you're committing adultery. You are cheating on God. You are aligning yourself with a God other than him, whatever that could be. Now, and now for them, sometimes that was literal gods, the gods of Babylon. We'll talk about that in a second. For us today, those gods take on many forms, right? The God of work, the God of money, the God of success, the God of self. Sometimes it's good things. The God of your wife, the God of your children. Sometimes it's wonderful things. It is anything that we could take, even a good thing, when we make it a God thing, right? That is idolatry. It's the essence of what it is. When we worship, when we bow down to it, when we uh, identify and orient our entire lives around whatever that thing is. And the Bible, over and over and over again, and it is no different here in the book of Revelation, says that that is not just a wrong thing, an immoral thing, a bad thing. No, it says that's an adulterous thing. You are committing adultery against the God that you have been united to through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, shameless plug, um, this Sunday I will be preaching on this very theme again. We'll be looking at 1 Peter 2.10, and it's actually a quote. I'm just giving a little away here. It's a quote out of the book of Hosea. And it's a phenomenal look at what God has done to overcome our idolatry, the adultery of our idolatry. So that's on Sunday. But what I want you to see here is this theme continues throughout the Bible, and it is certainly here, uh, the prostitute, sexual immorality. And we see that this sin is intoxicating. So he talks about this wine that really the, the rulers of the earth have become drunk on this. Our sin is seductive, isn't it? again, continues with the theme of adultery. It's not just that we're doing wrong, that we are actually seduced by these other gods, these other things to worship. We're lured by them. Our sin is seductive. And we're told in verse 3 that uh, the angel carries John away in the spirit into a wilderness. And I saw the woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names. And it had, been, it had seven heads and ten horns. So we have another image of a beast. This prostitute is now sitting on it. Uh, the, the beast, we're told, is scarlet. Scarlet is another word for red. So that should bring up an image again. Uh, a few uh, lessons ago, we talked about the red dragon. Right? So the same color. Red, the color of the dragon. The color of uh, Satan and his forces. We're told it has seven heads and ten horns. And that these horns are full of blasphemous names, right? So again, seven and ten, these words of completion, horns of power. In other words, that this is a satanic beast that is full of power, but not just any kind of power. It's blasphemous power. And what does that mean to be blasphemous? Well, it's not just godless. It's anti-God. It's against God. It's going against what God says and what he is and who he is, what he stands for. So this is an anti-godless beast. And we'll look more about that in a second. Uh, we're told that this woman is arrayed in purple and scarlet, right? So there's almost a royal quality to it, but she's also dressed in red. Adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, and she's holding in her hand a golden cup. 
full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immorality. So she's offering out to all uh, people, here's this golden cup, this enticing golden cup. I, when I was reading this, I just the first thing I thought of was uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. No, not Raiders of the Lost Ark. Uh, the Last Crusade. You know the one, Indiana Jones, Last Crusade, and the very end, and they're in uh, that final room, and there's all the different chalices laid up. You know what I'm talking about? And the old man has got to choose which is the cup of Christ, and what does he pick? Now, he, now the simple one was Indy. He, he knew. No, he picked the most fancy, beautiful, ornate cup that he could find. Right? That's, that's this image. It's this image, this, this woman that's prized, holding out this beautiful cup. It looks like you want to take a drink. Right? It is enticing. But it is full of immorality that you could not even fathom. And as you take it in, it, it leads to your destruction. It leads to your destruction. That's what she's holding out. And we're told in verse 5 that on her forehead is written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and earth's abominations. And I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. These civilizations have not just been um, leaving God in the dust, but they are anti-God. These civilizations have even led to the destruction of God's people. That's what we're looking at. This kind of sin, this kind of idolatry, this kind of wickedness, this kind of evil. And this vision is so overwhelming to John that he says he was marveled by it, astonished. Not in a good way. Not in a good way. But he, he can't believe what he's seeing. Much in the same way that we're told that the Apostle Paul, when he went into Athens, and he saw all of the idols in Athens, he was overwhelmed by them. So my question to you and to me this morning is, are we still overwhelmed when we see the, the grotesqueness of sin? Are we still astonished by that? Or does nothing surprise us anymore? Have we grown numb in our culture as it becomes more and more godless? Can we, can we see how terrible, how awful, how heinous, how gross sin really is? Because that's the vision. We're told this beast, verse 7, has seven heads and ten horns, and the angel begins to describe what all of this means. He says that uh, this beast stands in, in direct contrast to God, who he is. We see this in particular, uh, verse 8. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise. Now think about that. This beast was, is not, and is. Now, what does that sound like? The one who was and is and is to come. It's intentional. This beast is the anti-God. God, who the book of Revelation describes, the one who, it, who was, who is, and is to come. This beast is the one who what? Was, is not, and is. It's the opposite. And so we're seeing this direct contrast, this beast, the anti-God. In verse 9... He says this, he says, this calls for a mind with wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. 
There are also seven kings, five of them who fall and one is and the other is not yet come. And when he does not, when he does come, he must remain only a little while. And he goes on and on to describe uh, what, he, what sounds like he's saying, I'm explaining everything to you. If you're like me and you're reading this, like that didn't help at all. <laughs> I, don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Now I'm even more confused. And so let me just give you a few ideas of what he might be talking about. Um, the first is this. He, ta- he talks about, well, listen, these seven, that number seven, um, what do we do with that? Well, he says, well, the seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. Now we know that the, the uh, city of Rome was actually built on seven mountains. And so many have thought, well, this clearly then is meant to be a picture of Rome. That's what's going on here. Um, perhaps that's what it is. Uh, that Rome was built on seven mountains, but we're also told in verse 15, 16, 17, and 18, that all of this is referring ultimately to a city. And not just any city, but that city is actually named. It's the city of Babylon, the city that's written on the woman's forehead. So maybe it's Babylon. Perhaps it's Babylon that this is talking about. And my answer to you is, well, yes, It is. It's, it's all of that. That for the people of Israel, it was Babylon. That the godless society would be represented best by Babylon in their day. Well, in John's day, it was no longer Babylon, but who was it? It was Rome. Rome represented all that was godless, all of civilization that would be opposed to the things of God. Now today, I'm not going to tell you what that might be, but we have our own versions of Babylon and Rome in our world today, don't we? That really, it doesn't matter. You can read the book of Revelation in any era and see what happens when people form a completely godless civilization apart from him and his rule and authority and what that kind of civilization leads to. So in other words, as Chad talked about last week, we're talking about institutionalized uh, godlessness, the satanic state, right? This is all that is evil, not only in Satan's devices to try to tempt us in an organized way, but this is all of people organizing themselves around it and even forming society, civilization as we know it, completely apart to God. Is it Rome? I would say yes. Is it Babylon? Yes. Do we have those kinds of kings and kingdoms in our world today? We absolutely do. Yes. And until Christ returns, more kings and more kingdoms will come, completely opposed to the rule of God. And the question is, how close to home do those things hit? Do you assume that that kind of kingdom isn't right here and right now, in our own time and place? Like, do you assume right now, as I said that, well, that's got to be the Middle East? Well, sure. But could it also be right here, in our own homeland? Right? That's what we have to ask ourselves as we read this. Now, this vision of the city that we're given, the city that uh, pra- to, brings us into Re- Revelation 8, 18, uh, is this godless city. That's the vision. That all of the civilization takes the form of this godless city, and here it's, it's Babylon. And I want you to think about, you know, I remember, and this is no knock, some, maybe some of you love this place. I remember the first time I went to Vegas. And, and seriously, just overwhelmed. I mean, it really is Sin City, right? I mean, that's the vision. I mean, the underbelly, perhaps, of what Vegas really is. It's even worse than that. 
Or I remember when I went to Cameroon shortly after college, and I never felt safer in the villages. I've never felt more afraid when I was in the city. Because in the city, in Douala, Cameroon, I felt like anybody I met was about to just, honestly, would, would just assume just kill me and take my money in order to survive. It was dog eat dog. I mean, in the truest sense of the word. And maybe you've been in a city like that that was just evil uh, at its core. That's what this vision is really looking at. And so we're told the second thing is that there is judgment. There is judgment for this kind of sin. And I must warn you, as I'm warning myself this morning, this kind of sin is in us too. And we're going to see that in a second. But we're not immune to this. We're not immune to this. It's in us too. And there's judgment for this kind of sin. We're told in Revelation 18 that he sees another angel coming down from heaven, has great authority, and with a mighty voice says, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast. All the nations have drunk the wine and passion of her sexual morality. So there's that theme again. Kings of the earth have committed immorality with her. The merchants of the earth have grown rich from the power of her luxurious livings. So what I want you to see is this is not just, it is, it's focusing on one city, right, Babylon, but all of the earth is not immune, right? All of the earth, all of people have committed sexual immorality with her. That's what John sees. Verse 4, I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, lest you take part in her sins and lest you share in her plagues. So again, we see that we're not immune. And there's a warning given to the people of God. Flee the city. Flee this city of sin. Do not stay here. Because this city is nothing but a complete abomination to the Lord. And it is seductive. If you stay here, you will take part in these sins. And then more importantly, I'm about to bring my judgment upon this city like never before. And you need to leave before it happens. We see similar kind of warnings given in the prophets in the Old Testament. Verse 8, for this reason, plagues will come down in a single day. Death and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for mighty is the Lord who has judged her. And the kings of the earth who committed sexual morality and lived in luxury with her will weep and wail over her when they see the smoke of her burning. They will stand far off in fear of torment and say, Alas, alas, you great city, you mighty city Babylon, for in a single hour your judgment has come. This is the judgment. We're told it is swift, it is quick, it is total, complete destruction in a single hour. This great city that man had built in their own image, God has completely decimated. Now, Revelation 16 tells us that all of this battle, this destruction, this final judgment begins at a place called Armageddon. And perhaps you've heard that before. Right? We even think sometimes of the end of the world as Armageddon, also the name of one of the greatest movies ever made. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> it's not. Um, so Armageddon, I mean, that, that's the word we hear. We're told Revelation 16 tells us it's a place, the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. There's been a lot of speculation over what that means because there is no such place that's actually called Armageddon. Now, there is a place that's called Har-Mageddon in Hebrew. 
It's Mount Megiddo. Now, if, I don't know if you've ever been there. I actually brought, this is fun, show and tell. Don't tell anybody to report me. But I have here in my hand, this is pottery from Mount Megiddo. Yes, I took it. And yes, I snuck it through customs. Um, Mount Megiddo actually isn't a mountain. It actually is called a tell. Now, I don't we have time to get into um, you know, archaeology here. But it, it was never a mountain to begin with. It's just in a valley, right? It, a tell is what has become almost like a little hill or a little mountain because so many cities have been sacked and destroyed and another city was built on top of it. And Mount Megiddo has gotten so high that it actually overlooks the Valley of Armageddon. That, that it's become almost a mountain. Why? Because so many cities in that one spot have been completely destroyed and rebuilt. And this is some pottery. I don't know how old it is. It's fun to think it's really old. From one of those cities that was completely destroyed. So here's the point. Perhaps it will be in that place. But I think by referencing this Megiddo, Mount Megiddo, Armageddon, Harmageddon. Har means mountain, by the way, in Hebrew. The point is this. Just like so many cities have been completely destroyed in this place, completely decimated, only to have another city rebuilt on top of it for it to be completely destroyed, so too, and all our devices and all our ways to build ourselves cities in our own name, will we also be completely judged and destroyed. That's the image. It is fierce. It is quick. It's judgment. And as the kings of the world look on this image themselves, they are wailing and they are weeping. It's horrible. It should be for us. But where we're going to end this morning, I'll send you your tables. As as horrible as judgment is and should be, that sin is going to be laid to waste in such a dramatic fashion that this should lead us to the glory of God and his justice. Revelation 18.20, we see this, says, Rejoice over her, O heaven, you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given you judgment for you against her. Who's the her? This is hard. It's Babylon. In other words, we're told as God's people to rejoice over Babylon. In other words, rejoice. Babylon has been destroyed. What do you do with that? (laughs) How are we going to rejoice over something so horrible? Or Revelation 19 Revelation 19, verse 1, John says, After this I heard what seemed to be a loud voice, a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to God, for His judgments are true and just. And He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of servants. And they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke goes up from her. That's the smoke rising from the ashes of Babylon. Hallelujah, the smoke goes up from her forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all ye servants, all you fear him, small and great. The beginning of this, I asked, what do you do with God's judgment? Revelation actually tells us what to do with it. And it's not what you would expect. 
It says rejoice. Rejoice. Worship. Now, how do we do that? When we read something so horrible, knowing that this is, the end is coming and this is what's going to happen, what do we do with that? When we're called to rejoice for God's judgment. Two things. I want you to go to your tables. The first is this. We rejoice because justice has been served. And in particular, justice on God's name and those who have died for his name. We see that in Revelation 19. That the martyrs have been avenged. And I think all of us have a sense of what this kind of rejoicing looks like. It's not gloating, right? But it's the kind of um, the, the sense that justice has been served, and it needed to be. And as difficult as that is, it needed to happen. I remember, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen a 30 for 30 about George W. Bush throwing the first pitch at the Yankees World Series game after 9-11. Have you seen it? It's phenomenal. You should go watch it. Um, in, in that, as they're telling the story, they show that moment where George W. goes to visit uh, the Twin Towers. And he's on the rubble for the first time. And he's just taken his presidency, and he grabs a bullhorn, right? And all of these guys, you know, who've just lost so many comrades, uh, so many friends, are exhausted. They've been looking for their buddies. They've been looking for survivors. And he's trying to speak to them, right? And they can't hear him. And they're good New Yorkers, right? So this is the President of the United States speaking through a bullhorn. They just go, we can't hear you. And George W. Bush, and it's just great Texas wit, right? He just says, I can hear you. And the whole world is about to hear from us, right? The people who did this to us are about to hear all of us soon. And they all erupt in cheers. That's the sense. Justice must be served. It's not a gloating kind of rejoicing, but it's rejoicing that justice must be served. But more than that, rejoice because this judgment has not fallen on you. Rejoice. Because this judgment has not fallen on you. You deserve it. You are not immune. At times in your life, you have as well committed sexual immorality with a prostitute, right? That you have aligned yourself with godlessness. That you've committed adultery, idolatry against God. And yet we are told, Jesus in the garden said, If it would be possible, take this cup from me. Not my will, but yours be done. What's the cup? The cup of God's wrath. And rather than pushing the cup aside, Jesus drank it deeply. All the wrath that was meant to be poured out on you and me, he drank for us. The bowl of wrath, Christ drank so that you and I would not be judged. Know that we would be justified. When you begin to understand how grotesque and horrible God's judgment is, you realize that is what Christ did for you and for me. And so rejoice. Rejoice that your name is written in the book of life, and that the Lamb who was slain was slain for you. Let me pray for you and send you to your tables. Father, this is a lot. We went over a little too long this morning. I apologize for that to my brothers. I pray, God, as we talk about these among our tables, that you would help us take some very weighty concepts and, and bring them to heart. And my prayer for all of us, um, myself and my brothers here, is that we would leave this church as we go to work with a, more, a, a sense of awe. Awe at your, um, at your judgment and justice, but also awe at our Savior. That he drunk the bowl of wrath for us. He drunk the cup. 
And Lord, we praise you for that. We rejoice. We rejoice that we are now um, justified because our Lord and Savior was judged on our behalf. Uh, We ask this in his name. Amen.